The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled The Birth of the Peacemaker. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord. From the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 33 through 35, and the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him who we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. We are closing out a series in Advent that we called The Birth of the Peacemaker. And it kind of starts and it kind of revolves around this text that we see in uh, the book of Luke chapter 2. And in this text, it's 40 days after Jesus was born. Uh, His father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, brought him to the temple to offer the appropriate sacrifices and to present Jesus to the Lord as as prescribed for them to do in accordance with the law of the Old Testament. And this this day was a little different, though. As they walked into the temple, this man, he was a righteous and devout man, the Bible says. His name was Simeon. Um, He'd been prayerfully longing and looking for God's advent. Now, the advent is when God would send the Messiah, the anointed one who would come back into the world to make everything right. We're, get, we'll get, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but we'll get, well, I'll explain a little bit that, more of that later. So we've been waiting for God's advent, and this day he sees Mary and Joseph come in with this brand new baby, and they get this kind of surprise. Well, it really probably wasn't much of a surprise. 40 days prior, they did have angels announcing this birth to them, right? So they, kind of, they knew who Jesus was. You know, the whole song, Mary, did you know? Yeah, the he, she knew, right? She knew, sorry. Uh, the angels told her, right? And they walk in, and this righteous and devout man, he looks at Mary and Joseph, and he says this in Luke chapter 2, verses 34. He says, Behold, this child, the child that you're holding, Jesus, is appointed, that's appointed by God, this is his calling from God, for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. So Jesus himself will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also. He's speaking to Mary there. No mother wants to hear that. She, she's going to watch her son be crucified in 30, 30 or so years from now. And then, she, and then he says this, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And this is kind of the theme that we've been preaching on uh, in this time of Advent. I've said it over the past few weeks, Simeon is saying that no one, no human being can remain neutral to Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but he also says that he come, came to bring a sword, he came to bring division even between household, mother and father sometimes, and he's not being, you know, he's not contradicting himself there, he's fulfilling this prophecy of Simeon. Jesus reveals what's in the heart of mankind and that always causes a revolutionary, cataclysmic 
reaction. It crushes some and it exalts others. It causes some to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him, and it causes others to walk away from him sad, grieved, and angry. And in this sense, we've seen that Jesus has been and continues to be the most polarizing figure in human history. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at and studying particular encounters that Jesus had with individuals. And today, to close out this Advent series, we're going to move from the particular to the universal. That God sent Jesus not just to make peace with individuals, but to make peace on earth. This is why the angels chorused, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. So instead of looking at another personal encounter with Jesus that looked forward to the cross, today we're going to listen to the Apostle Paul describe for us what Jesus accomplished with his life, death, and resurrection. We're going to find that in Romans chapter 5, if you could go there with us this morning. So for the past three weeks, guys, you can see the banners around here kind of point to those things. We've been looking backward And we've been looking at these encounters that Jesus had that were looking actually forward to the cross, his his going to the cross. This was encounters while he lived and while he walked and while he taught. But now, as the Apostle Paul is going to describe for us something, it's after Jesus has been crucified, after Jesus has been resurrected, that Paul himself was not a disciple of Jesus. He was actually a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. He was actually holding the coats for people who killed and martyred Stephen. He was antagonistic to Christians. He really couldn't stand him. He tried to snuff him out. And yet the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to him on his road to Damascus, knocked him off of his horse, and he was converted to Christianity and became one of the strongest proponents for Christianity. So this guy that's writing this, is a, he's, it's an encounter. He had an encounter with Jesus. A skeptic had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And now he's looking backwards at what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us. Okay, so that's what we're doing today. And what we're going to learn is that peace on earth was never meant to be a Hallmark card slogan. Jesus did not come for sappy, sentimental notions of peace. In fact, the entire message of Christmas is that we were lost without any hope of ever getting right with God So God took it upon himself to save us, becoming a man like us, living the life that all of us should have lived, then of course taking the punishment that we deserve and dying our death in our place. And this morning, there's I'm gonna we're gonna kind of look at the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done to save us. And there's basically five aspects to the gospel that we all need to know. And I'm going to tell you, they're absolutely simple, and that the, the young, a young child can grasp them, but they're also unfathomably deep, and that the greatest minds on earth can never really plumb their depths. Tim Keller often says that the gospel is like an ocean. A little child can run out and play on the beach, and, and yes, they're in the ocean, but obviously, the deeper you go out, you, the deeper it gets, and you can never get to the bottom of it, right? And the gospel is the same way. And we're going to look at that this morning. Basically, there's five aspects that we're going to take a look at. One, we just got to know who we are. In order to understand the gospel, we have to understand who we are as human beings. Two, we have to understand who God is. Three, we have to understand the problem that exists between us and God. And four, we need to know what God has done to make things right, to fix the problems that uh, assuaged us. And then lastly, we want to see the repercussions of that. Because of what God has done, now what? All right, so that's the five things we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to go as fast as I can, not promising anything. Uh, I was telling the guy, the people in the back, I haven't never, we preach verse by verse through the books of the Bible typically, and we have not went verse by verse through Romans yet. Um, one day, probably when I'm old enough not to care, uh, we're going to do it. Uh, one of my mentors, John Piper, it took him seven years to get to the book of, uh, the book of Romans, so just buckle up for that right? The day might be coming. So I'm going to try to get through 11 verses this morning. I'm not promising anything. It's going to be pretty difficult. Uh, Paul writes like a theological genius. He's not afraid of using big words. And so sometimes we have to get down in these big words and understand what they mean. 
Um, so we're going to do that a little bit this morning. So first thing, let's talk about who we are, our anthropology, right? What, 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 are human, what are humans? Where do we come from? What does it mean to be a human? Well, the Bible teaches that human beings are created. The Latin term was imago Dei. It means the, in the image of God that we have God's image stamped upon us that gives us inherent dignity, value, and worth. We're not worthy because we do good things. We're worthy because God's, we're valuable because God has put his stamp of approval on us. We are unique among all the creatures on the earth. Therefore, human beings have great potential for doing good in the world. We've seen this. You can go to the moon, right? We can do amazing things. Uh, but the Bible also, I'm not going to spend too much time on that, all right? The Bible also gives us another scene in the story of God, the narrative that God's been writing that's meant to shape our anthropology. And that is, though we were created by God in his image and breathed into by his very breath, right? This is kind of where we get our spirit from. He, he enjoins our spirit to our body. Our great ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey God and rebel from him. Now this choice to exercise their free wills over and against their creator brought about a promised curse upon all of creation. Now we see this curse all over. Mankind is now separated from God. We are alienated from our creator. So we feel a brokenness. We feel a disconnect. We feel something missing in our souls, right? Um, God is now a judge with a case against us, right? We have a, there's a portfolio, right, with our name on it, with every list of everything we've ever done wrong. And God has that, and now he's a judge against us. And nobody wants to cozy up with a judge that has a great case against him, right? So that's a problem for us. Now, we're also alienated with one another. When Adam and Eve sinned, immediately they begin to feel shame and fear in their interpersonal relationships, and of course, mankind also began to suffer their own physical demise as death began to, to sink its ugly claws into them and drag them back down into the earth from which they came. And this curse was a perpetual curse. It was passed down to all of mankind. And it's called, in theological terms, we call this original sin. It is been inherited by every son and daughter of Adam and Eve since the garden. And that means though human beings are capable of great good, we can do amazing things, we are also capable of unspeakable evil. And I don't need to convince you of that fact. The news does a pretty good capable job of that every single day. But what we do, we might need convincing of is that human beings were not born, you know, pure blank canvas who somehow get bent towards evil. We can't just point at our parents or point at the neighborhood we grew up in and blame all of our problems on that. Even though this is what much of kind of pop psychology tells us, what scripture tells us is that God and God himself has revealed to us in his word is that all of us are born with sin imprinted upon our DNA. I have never once had to teach my child how to be selfish. I never had to teach, I have four of them. I never had to, okay, this is how you yank the toy away and say mine, right? I didn't have to teach them that. I didn't have to teach them how to snatch a piece of candy out of their, their siblings' hands and run off, right? They knew how to do that all on their own. This was in their DNA. What I do have to teach them, I have to teach them how to be kind, how to be generous, how to share, how to love others as they love themselves. This is not natural to our DNA, right? We are born in sin. And so for, for us, if we're really going to understand and answer some of the greatest questions we have as human beings, We've got to understand uh, the greatest questions we have about ourselves. We have to understand what God says about us. How are we made? Why are we broken? Why do we have these issues? Why do we sin? We have to start here with knowing ourselves rightly. We are capable of greatness, but we're also inherent sinners through and through. In Romans 5, before it gives us any good news, kind of, it's going to show us four things about human beings before they meet God, before they know God. 
And we might not like to believe these things. Our culture has been trying to convince us that they aren't true. Well, let's take a look one for one second here. Let's go to verse 6 really quick. Chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, For while we were still weak. Now this word weak in the, in the Greek literally means wanting in moral strength, will, or courage. Okay, we all know your child, they're born morally weak, right? They're, they don't have, you know, they don't have a strong will necessarily, or at least it's not bent towards good things, right? Um, and all of us inherently are weak spiritually. We don't have the capability or the capacity to find God, to know God, to pursue God, or even to sustain a relationship with him. We are spiritually incapable of finding God on our own. We're too weak, spiritually speaking. Okay, that's what Paul says about the human condition before Christ. We're weak. Secondly, verse 6. At the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Now, what does it mean to be ungodly? This means that we don't even really want to know God. People sometimes speak of mankind's search for God. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, that's like speaking of the mouse's search for the cat, right? If God has something against us, nobody wants to find him, right? Let me go find that judge that's got a really stick, you know, a really strong case against me. Let me go find that guy, right? None of us want to find God. We're ungodly. And so we're kind of, in, in, in a sense, in our soul, we're kind of repelled from him before Christ saves us. This is kind of the cry of our souls of autonomy. I, I want to be my own God. I, I want to do my own thing. I want to make my own way. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. So we're weak. Ah, we're, we're ungodly. This isn't going well, right? Three, verse eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, now, sinners, what does it mean to be sinner? You know, it means to miss the mark. It means God has says, this is how humans should live. Let me just make it really simple. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love others as you love yourself. And we are sinners. We don't do that very well, right? We break God's law. We're selfish. We don't love God. We love money more than we love God. We love presents more than we love God. We love our eggnog latte more than we love God. Right? And so what does God say about that? He says, we are now sinners. Okay? So we're born in sin, and then we also commit sin, and we become, you know, inherently guilty of sin. Okay? So we are weak, ungodly sinners. Yikes. Verse 10, he ain't done yet. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Enemies. Now, I, I want us to think that most of us don't really think about this. What, what does that mean? That an enemy is a person who hates another and wishes him harm. The Apostle Paul, right, when he gets knocked off his horse and converted to Christianity, has this radical encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. He looks back on his own life and he says, before Christ did that to me, I was God's enemy, and he speaks to us and he says, before we embrace Jesus Christ, we are actually God's enemy. We have something against him and he has something against us. And we, in a sense, hate each other in a sense. Now, most of us might not have maybe the, the self-awareness or the courage to actually admit this. But I bet if you really examine your past, I bet you have felt it at some point in your life. I know that I have. Because God, we knew, intrinsically we knew God exists, right? We look at the sky, we look at the stars, we look at the world that he's made, we look at ourselves, and we know that there's a creator. And yet some, some point in our life, though that we knew God exists, and then I cannot make God, we found out somehow, I cannot make God do what I want him to do. And when I realize the fact, I can't bend God's arm at all, right? I can't convince him to give me what I really want. I begin to realize how much I hate him. How many of us have lashed out in prayer at God? Why 
Aren't you giving me what I need? Why am I going through this right now? Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? See, God, he's sovereign. He cannot be controlled. His will cannot be frustrated. And that frustrates the will of man. That frustrates us. And this leads to what usually amounts to just a quiet hatred in the heart of man that refuses to bow their will to him, to bow their knee to him, to worship him as God. Paul says, if a person has not bent their knee to God, they're actually an enemy of God. Okay, so that's not too encouraging, right? We're weak, right? Ungodly sinners who are God's enemies, all right? But that might help us understand just a little bit better the meaning of Christmas, especially when you pair that with, I'm going to go through this really quick, who God is. So that's who we are before Christ. Now, who is God? I'm just going to give you four aspects. One, he's omnipotent. That means he's absolutely powerful. He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. All right. Secondly, he's holy. All right. Um, That means he's completely different from us. He's completely pure and he's completely holy. He's not like us in our sinful, selfish state. He's three, he's righteous. He always does what is right. In fact, he can't do what is wrong, right? Fourth, he's good. Or others would say he's benevolent. He's omni-benevolent, okay? Now from that, and that's quick. I, I could spend all day on those aspects, but here, from that, we see the problem, right? There exists, a giant chasm, a giant problem between us and God. He is good and we are not. He is righteous and we are not. He is holy and we are not. And therefore, because he's holy and righteous and good, he must punish sin. He cannot ever let the guilty go free because that would be a total miscarriage of justice itself. He cannot let the cries of the oppressed go unheard and unanswered. That would not be good. That would not be righteous. That would not be just. That would not be holy. So God, here it is, brings the other side of his love, wrath, to bear upon sinners. That's that's what our justice department does. You have somebody who's been sinned against. We don't use the term sinned against, violated, And so the justice department brings their wrath upon the evildoer, right? That's what our justice department does. God is a holy God. God does the same thing. So you see the problem. Here is the problem. God is holy and we are not. We are enemies of God. Now we might not recognize that. We might think I'm pretty cool with him. I don't think I've ever done anything too bad. But we don't understand really the problem. This is our greatest problem. Now, it might be the greatest problem of your life that you've never even thought about. Here it is. Think about it like this. If God, the righteous judge, pours out his wrath on all sinners, all of his enemies, how do you ever expect to get out from under it? See, God's wrath is not reserved for murderers, rapists, and brutal dictators. His wrath is poured out against all sin and all sinners alike. Therefore, we are, in a sense, at war with God. Now, if you couple that with, like, who we really are, right? We're spiritually weak. We're ungodly sinners who are born enemies of God. How, please tell me, how could we ever fix ourselves or fix this world that we live in? How could we ever make peace with God? Now, religion has been man's answer. 
okay? Religion, some branches of philosophy, some branches of moralism, that's been man's answer. Man's answer is always, well, be good enough, be, be a little bit better, be a little smarter, obey the rules, do your best, and then just, you know, hope for the best. But what you realize is there is never good enough, right? The question is, how good is good enough? Well, God says perfect is the, the standard. Perfect is good enough. And we all know we're not perfect. So we have this great problem. Religion has a great problem. But here is where the gospel of Jesus Christ differs from every religion on the planet. And if you want to argue with me about it, I would love to. Come and talk to me. Right? We can talk to, we can go into all the other religions that you want to talk about. But Christianity is unique in this sense. Here it is. Listen. The problem between God and man cannot be fixed by man. And so what God does himself in humility is he comes, he makes a covenant of redemption. He makes an agreement with Jesus. God exists in three, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're pre-incarnate. They exist in the Godhead forever. But they make it a, a covenant of redemption. And Jesus promises to go and put on flesh. That's what the word incarnate means. It means to put on flesh, right? God put on flesh and came to save us from our sins. Now, how did he do that? Well, long story short, okay? Let's go to verse six. We're gonna read verse six through eight. Here's what this means. Now, we have to understand this to understand the true meaning of Christmas. Verse six. For while we were still weak, that means we're spiritually weak, spiritually incapable, right? If I said to you, if I set up a bench press and I put 300 pounds on it and, and I said, and, and you said, I'm too weak to bench, you're incapable of lifting that weight. When he says we're weak, we're spiritually incapable of making ourselves right with God. That's what he means. Keep going. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ, look, died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. That means many of us, if we see somebody good, we might jump in front of them to catch a bullet or push them out away from a moving train. We're, we're willing to die often, I mean often, we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for somebody we really love and somebody who's righteous and good. But God is not like us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners breaking his law, Christ died for us. This is the gospel in the nutshell. Jesus Christ, God, stepped into human history, put on flesh, was born of a baby, born to a poor, unwed mother at the time, grew up in abject poverty, out of the limelight, 30 years, lived a perfect life, had a three or so year ministry, healed the sick, did all kinds of miracles. This is written about outside of the Bible. The Bible tells us it, but it's also, there's extra biblical sources that testify to the reality of Jesus' existence, the reality of his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. So Jesus lives this perfect life. What does that do? The judge looks at Jesus and says, finally, one guy that lives the way that I want mankind to live. One guy that perfectly loves me and perfectly loves others like he loves himself. Jesus is the perfect human being. And yet, roughly 33 or so years old, Jesus doesn't get hailed as a king and exalted to a throne and, and wealth laid at his feet and everybody worship him as the greatest, you know, sinless king that's ever been in the world. No, no, no. Jesus exchanges places with humanity. Now, this is, where, this is what's interesting. Jesus takes our sin on himself. He stands before the judge and he says, everything that they've done wrong, put it on me. Give me all of their folders. Give me all of their records, all of their sin. Give it to me. 
And every single person who the father gave to Jesus, he gave them these folders. Jesus takes these folders with all of those sin of the elect to the cross. Jesus dies on the cross for them and they are justified. What does that mean? They stood before the the, the bench of judge and the judge says, it's just as if you've never sinned. All the case is closed because Jesus died the death that you deserve. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And then to, because we wouldn't be convinced of that for one, Jesus three days later is resurrected. He is seen by over 500 witnesses. All of his apostles that ran away and thought the story was over, come back to him and they're met by him and they're forgiven by him and they touch his hands and they see him and they eat with him. And then they start this movement. Jesus is resurrected, showing us what's going to happen at the end of human history, that all of us are going to get new bodies. We're going to be resurrected and we're going to live forever in his kingdom. And then Jesus is He ascends to the right hand of the Father to rule and reign in heaven until the Father says the time has come for him to come back and renew the whole world. And we sing about it in those hymns that someday when Christ comes back, the trees will clap their hands. The mountains and fields will sing for joy. If the trees clap their hands and the rocks cry out, what do you think we're going to be able to do? That's coming when Christ comes back. Now listen, that's the gospel. But listen, here's the thing. In Romans chapter 5, we're going to see that the gospel is like an explosion that sets off a chain reaction of things. There's repercussions of the gospel that that move out, and we need to take a look at those. And we're going to start in verse 1. Some of those I'll reiterate because we need to see it. If you've got a highlighter, you need to highlight some stuff in this text. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, I said this a few weeks ago. Every time in the text there is a therefore, we need to ask ourselves, what is it there for? That it's pointing back to something that's already been written or accomplished. Paul, of course, he's pointing back to the cross and he's saying this. Therefore, we have already been justified. Our salvation in one, in one sense is accomplished When Christ died and when we put our faith in him, our salvation has been accomplished. We have been justified, declared righteous before the judge. Okay, that's the first thing. We have been justified by faith. And this also points back to the entire chapter four. What does faith mean? I'm just going to give a really simple illustration here. If I have faith in this pulpit, right, I I lean my weight onto it. You have faith in the chairs that you're sitting on right? You sat down in them and you put all your weight, all your trust on that chair. To put our faith in Christ means to put all of our weight on him, to trust him with our souls, to trust him with our lives, to trust him with our salvation, to trust him with our future. And those who put their faith in Christ are justified. Secondly, keep reading. So therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is different than the Roman Catholic idea of justification, that, you, that justification happens after death when you've proven that you've justified yourself by being morally good. No, 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 no. The reformers taught us and, and Paul teaches us that we're justified by faith, putting our trust in Christ. We're made righteous. We can't earn it. We can't become it. We're made righteous by faith. Next. So that's the first thing. We've been justified by faith. That's a repercussion of the gospel. Secondly, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you really bought what the Bible is selling here, right? What the Bible teaches about who we are, that we're enemies of God. Now the gospel is even sweeter because what Jesus has done has brought reconciliation to us that God, once we put our faith in Christ, God is no longer our enemy, He's no longer against us. The case has been closed and now he's for us and he loves us and we have peace with God. This is a repercussion of the gospel. Next, let's keep reading. Verse two, through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access. Think about this. There's this separation 
There's been this distance between us and God. We can never get back to where we were. The, the, you know, the purity of the Garden of Eden, that unobstructiveness of a relationship with God where you can walk and talk with him and you can know him. There was this distance. But Paul is saying now we have been given access through Jesus. Look, into, here's where we get access into, this grace in which we stand. Now this, I I could spend, this is a whole sermon right here, okay? We've been given access into this new land called grace. And in this land of grace, we can relate to the Father, we can know him, and we can stand in his presence. Now, what's so interesting about that? This is not, like you know, you hear in the news, this person fell out of grace, right? What does that mean, to fall out of grace? That means maybe you're a dignitary, maybe, maybe you're, you know, one of the president's men, and then you fall out of grace. This kind of happens a lot these days, right? Uh, you fall from grace. You fall out of his grace. He had, you had his favor for a moment, but you did something wrong or did something that he didn't like. And so now you've fallen from grace and you don't have the access that you used to have. Now, listen, this is a, 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 a beautiful repercussion of the gospel. Okay. Moralism and other religions all teach falling from grace. You're good with God if you keep up the act, if you keep obeying, if you keep doing good, right? You're good with God. But when you sin, you fall from grace, and now God's mad at you again, and God's distant from you again. And now, not only do you repent and put your faith in him, but now you do a lot of good works, and hopefully you, get, you gain his favor again. Hopefully you get back into his grace, The Apostle Paul is saying Christianity is nothing like that. That through the work of Jesus, living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we we deserve to die, he's given us access into this new land of grace in which we stand. We never fall from grace. When we're justified by Christ, his work got us into it, so there's no way our work can get us out of it. That's real good. Man, I wish I could preach a whole sermon on that. We've obtained access into grace in which we stand. Never do we have to be worried, is God for me or against me? Is God my enemy? Is God mad at me? We can displease him, right? We can grieve the spirit. That's totally different. To have access into the grace in which we can stand. It gives us confidence that no matter where we're at, we have the Father's ear. His eyes are upon us. Now, what's interesting is, well, let me just keep going. Number four, sorry. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of, of God. Now, these are these terms, guys, that I really want to just nerd out on, okay? I'm going to tell you. And we just read through them because it's just, it seems like religious gobbledygook. There's so many words on top of words on top of words. What does it mean to rejoice in hope of the glory of God? Well, the glory of God, made simple, is God's holiness, his kind of brilliance put on, disp- on display when we could get to see it. So we see the glory of God. When you go to the Grand Canyon, you stare at the Grand Canyon, you see the glory of God in creation, right? When you see the beauty of your child being born, you see the glory of God in creation, right? We see the glory of God there. Well, the glory of God is also revealed to us through the birth of Jesus, through the story of God, what I've been telling you about, through the birth of Jesus, we see that Jesus Christ was the perfect imprint of God's nature. He is the glory of God revealed to us. So when we look at the life of Jesus, we see a a glimpse of God's holiness on display. That's what a perfect human looks like. Wow, it's beautiful. The life of Jesus is meant to display to us the glory of God. But the glory of God is also on the way. That when Christ returns, he's bringing a public display of God's holiness. And he's going to be, I mean, it's going to, it sounds crazy, I know. He's coming from the skies and everybody will see him and everybody will bow down before him. Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And we're going to see God's glory once again, this time perfectly with our own eyes, not just the eyes of faith. But C.S. Lewis talks about our desire as humans isn't just 
to see glory. Isn't just to see God come, it's to be caught up in glory. And the reality of Christ coming back is that he is going to glorify us. We get new glorified bodies. We get, though we've been justified and deemed righteous, we'll get made righteous, glorified in the new heavens and the new earth. That means sin will be gone from us. We won't have sick bodies. We won't be, have degenerating bodies. We'll be able to love each other perfectly, love God perfectly. We are going to be glorified ourselves. And so the Christian and a repercussion of the gospel is that we have hope that rejoices in the coming glory of God, that I long for the day of Christ's second advent, the second time he comes back to make all things new, everything in heaven on earth, he's going to make new and he's going to glorify his believers. So, so far, these four things, what we've seen is salvation is more than just forgiveness. The gospel is more, it has a past aspect. You have been justified. It has a present aspect. This is the grace in which you stand. And it has a future aspect. You're going to be glorified and the whole earth is going to rejoice in the glory of God. So there's past, present, future aspects to our salvation. This is how big the story of God is. This is what Christmas is about. And before we get all sentimental and kind of sappy and think, wow, that's so nice. Why do we need to know that? Because look what's coming. Five, verse three. Not only all of that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Jesus flipped the script on all of reality when he came as a perfect human being, the God-man, and he suffered, and out of suffering brought redemption. His suffering brought us life. And so this is kind of the storyline that our lives are meant to take shape around. No one becomes a world-class sprinter by jogging a few laps now and then. It takes great pain to produce that kind of character, to produce that kind of hope of winning a medal, right? And we know suffering can have redemptive aspects. The same can be said spiritually, and that's the way we develop our character is by going through difficulty with our eyes on the past, present, future aspects of our salvation, that God is working in me now, no matter how difficult things are, he's promised to be working in me right now, producing character. And character is only built under pressure, in difficult circumstances. I'm not going to spend much time on that. I want to, though. You guys, this is a constant refrain from me. Let's keep going. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Look, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Guys, I know we say, you know, did you ask Jesus to come into your heart? And we say, what's the gospel? God, Jesus died for my sins, and it's going to be so simple, but it's so much deeper than that. Do you see this other aspect? He says that when you put your faith in Christ, that God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts. That now we have an internal conviction that we're loved by God, that we were his enemies who've been brought into his family and loved. And we know God now as father who loves us. We have an affection for God. This is why people say, 
Believing in God isn't just a mental ascent. Getting saved is just not a mental ascent. You don't just do some mental calculus and go, yeah, that, okay, that makes sense. I'll do that. No, 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 no. And let me add to my illustration. Faith isn't just leaning onto the pulpit. Faith is also loving the pulpit. Loving Christ. It's not just trusting Christ. It's loving him because the spirit has been given to me to enable me to love Christ. Good night. I know, I'm, this, I'm in the deep, I'm in the weeds, I know. I'm in the deep end, I get it, right? Blame it on Paul. All right, seventh repercussion is in verse nine, okay? But I'm gonna read six, seven, and eight just because. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, so because of what God has done, not because of what we have done, because of what God has done, we have now been justified by his blood, the blood of Christ on the cross. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the thing I didn't talk about was when Christ comes back, all of those who are still his enemies, all of those who rejected Jesus Christ, all of those who ignored him, all of those who treated Jesus like just another way, just another religion, all of those who are still his enemies will receive their due reward, which is the wrath of God that has yet to been paid for their sin. See, Christians, the wrath of God has been expunged on the cross by Christ. But for the unbeliever, the wrath of God will be expunged by your own experience in hell. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So he's saying here is the death of Christ justified us. But now the, when Christ was resurrected, he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us new life and he's going to save us from the future judgment as well. We're reconciled to God. We're saved from the coming wrath of God. And lastly, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice, look, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So I, I used the analogy earlier that the cat or the mouse doesn't go searching for the cat. But in the biblical narrative, the biblical story, somehow, right, when Christ justifies us and he reconciles us, now the cat and the mouse can be friends. That's us. We are reconciled to God. And listen, now... We love him. We have affections for him. We can rejoice in God. We can enjoy God himself. Now, if you understand what I just said, and there was a lot there, so I know. Here's the simple version. God saves us from himself, to himself, through himself, by himself, for himself. That's what the birth of Jesus Christ is about. I'm sure he was a cute baby, though. <laughs> Jesus did not come to die just so you could go to heaven when you die. He came so that you could be reconciled to God and you could enjoy God both in the present and in the future that all your past sins could be forgiven, all your pres present sins forgiven, all your future sins forgiven. And you could stand in this grace and know God and love God and see God and enjoy God and hope for the day where it's gonna be finally consummated and finally fulfilled. See, when we fail to enjoy him, especially at Christmas time, we're living like he's never done anything good for us. 
we're completely forgetting the story of Christmas, the whole story of Scripture. We're forgetting the beauty of the gospel. The God who didn't sit back and let us have our selfish ways, but came to interrupt us, interrupt all of our self-salvation efforts, all of our moralizing, all of our religion, to all of our trying to earn our way back to him. He interrupts it and saves us for himself. So here it is in a, as I'm closing this morning. So the bad news, the bad news of Christian, Christmas is that you are too bad and too sinful and too broken to ever repair your relationship with God. But the good news of Christmas is that God has done it all for you. He wrote the script. Jesus came and lived the life and died the death and rose into glory. And Jesus is coming back to make everything right, even us. All that's left is for you to believe, put your trust in God, love God, and follow him. God has done everything to save us. Will you embrace the God who's done this much to love you? I want you to think about this this Christmas Eve. It's a quote from John Stott in his commentary on Romans. It says this, the degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the beneficiary. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserve nothing from him except judgment. We all know the message of Santa, right? He's keeping an eye out. He's watching who's naughty or nice, right? We all like to use this, parents. Even if we don't believe, you know, teach our kids about Santa, we like to threaten the coal in the stocking type stuff, right? Get your act together. If you're not good, I'm taking that gift back. Listen, the message of the gospel is the complete opposite. Those who deserve the coal in their stocking, those who deserve death, get the very life of God through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story, the true story, the, true, the story that all other stories find their meaning in, find their significance from. We thank you for the work that you've done to save us, weak, ungodly, sinful enemies who you've made loved, sanctified friends and family of God. This is all your work, and we look to it. And for those who are already in Christ, we get to celebrate the supper this morning. We come before you with open hands, and we get to receive the greatest gift ever given to mankind, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are spiritually here, present with us this morning. And for those who have never put their faith in you, the skeptics among us, I pray this morning that they wouldn't come and take Christ in the elements, but they would take Christ by faith. They would lean all of their hope, all of their love, all of their weight onto him. For he is a savior who saves us from our sins. Thank you for this work. Thank you for what you're doing here among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.